Welcome to the Kickstart Garage, where we want to inspire and educate the leaders of tomorrow. Join us as we learn from the best in the business. Welcome back to the Kickstart Garage. I'm your host, Sam John Byrne, and I'm accompanied by my co-host, Gavin Quigley. Today, we're joined by Robert Leonard, host of the Millennial Investing Podcast and the Real Estate Investing Podcast, and also VP of Growth and Innovation at the Investors Podcast Network, which I say produces probably the best content in this space. I mean, you guys must have around 35 million downloads or more at this stage. Without a doubt, it was a, an exceptional resource for me when I started my investment journey. With that said, it's an absolute honor to have you on, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you much, Sam. I'm excited to be here. Um, before we get into the Millennial Investing Podcast and the real estate investing, I was wondering if you could give our audience a bit of background as to who you are and what got you interested in the space. It all started with listening to our flagship show, We Study Billionaires. I had never listened to any podcast before. This was the first one. And they were looking for a show host. And they were looking to launch essentially a second show. And I was remember I was driving to work. Actually, I was driving to the gym. I go to the gym at about 5 a.m. before I go to work. And I was driving to the gym and I heard on the on the episode that they were looking for a host for a new show called Silicon Valley. And they were looking for somebody that lived in the valley that could talk about tech. And I it really interested me. I thought it was something I'd love to do, but I didn't live in the valley and I didn't know anything about tech. So I figured, well, it's not a great fit for me. And I kind of just filed that in the back of my head and continued on with my day and my life. Fast forward a few months, turns out maybe six months to a year later, they're looking to do the same thing with a real estate show. And of course, that cost, caught my interest. I am a real estate investor. So I said, well, I could probably do that. And so I reached out to Stig, who is the one of the co-founders of the Investors Podcast and also host of the We Study Billionaire show. And ultimately, they said no. And so we ended up working on a few other different projects together. They liked what I did for work. And then one thing led to another. I ended up hosting the Millennial Investing Podcast. That one has done really, really well. And then we ended up launching the real estate show together. And that's pretty much where we're at today. What got you into the real estate investing space? I would say actually my focus was on stocks originally. I focused on and studied stocks for probably eight to 10 years or so before I had gotten into real estate. But what got me into real estate was that before I entered college or university, my father told me that I would have to pay him rent as soon as I graduated college and I started earning a salary. So I said, okay, you know that that's fair. I don't think that's an unfair request. I just didn't want to do it. And so I said, what what can I do to avoid this? And I said, I could move out and I could rent or I could just buy my own place. And so I told myself that I was just going to buy my own house when I graduated college. And you know, as a 20 to 22-year-old college graduate, you know, a lot of people are going to tell you you're crazy. And of course, my family did. My dad told me, my friends, my family, everybody was like, you can't do that. You know, it took us until our 40s to buy a house. And I said, you know, just like a, probably a lot of people that listen to this show, if you tell me no, that's just going to light an even bigger fire under me. So I just did everything I could for four years. I worked nearly full time while I was in college, saved up as much money as I could, and ended up buying my first house before I walked at my college graduation. And that turned me into a real estate investor because it ultimately turned into a house hack. I didn't know what a house hack was at the time. And it just I just kind of did it intuitively. And it ended up becoming a house hack, ended up turning me into a real estate investor. Cool. Hi, Robert. It's, it's Gavin here. Um, I wanted to just switch a little bit over the podcast. We're going to talk about real estate investing a little bit later on. This question, it's a little bit geared at individuals who'd be looking to start a podcast in their own niche. 
whatever their, their interests or, or hobbies may be. So for someone who may be tuning into your shows for the first time, can you tell our audience what kind of content they'd expect to hear and what could they learn from your show? Uh, and more so, who are these shows really targeting? So the Millennial Investing Podcast is for anybody that wants to invest their time or money better. Typically, people focused from ages 20 to roughly 35, that tends to be our focus. We tend to focus mostly on stock investing and personal finance, but we also do talk quite a bit about entrepreneurship and side hustles. And the reason for that is the main focus or our main topic is is investing. And you can invest a few different ways. And also it all kind of leads together into investing. And so if you want to be a successful investor, you need to have a strong personal finance base. And then once that's set, then you need to make enough money so that you have you can invest. And so that comes into side hustles and entrepreneurship and even careers. And then we talk about investing, whether it be stocks, alternative assets, things like that. So that's kind of how the show is built. That's kind of the premise of that show. Then on the other show, real estate investing, the goal is to help new investors. So if you've done no deals to roughly a few deals, uh, either get your first deal or continue to grow your portfolio. So it's really focused on your newer investors. Fantastic. Cool. What I wanted to ask as well, this will interest everyone. What are the long-term goals that you've got for yourself? I know this year has been a bit a bit mental for everyone, but would you have a, a specific goal for the show and for the network? Like, Would you be planning a, a long-term I suppose, like a Spotify deal similar to that of Joe Rogan. I don't have goals or aspirations to have a deal like Joe Rogan. I'd like to keep it independent. Uh, that said, if somebody was about to hand me a $100 million check like Spotify did, I'd change my mind. But I don't really necessarily have any defined goals for the show, really. I just really want to help as many people as I can. I love doing it. I love, I'm love. i passionate about all of the topics that we talk about across the shows. And so I really just want to reach as many people as I can, help as many people as I can. You know, I get to talk to some of the most amazing people in the world, entrepreneurs, investors, you know, business leaders. So that in and of itself is enough of a, a paycheck, if you will, even though it's not monetary. And so I'm just super grateful for that opportunity. And I don't really have any defined goals. I guess ultimately the goal I, I would say if I had to pick one would be to use that audience to eventually grow other businesses that I may start in the future. But other than that, really just to help as many people as possible. To be fair, Robert, that's that's fairly similar to what our goal is for this podcast. And we really appreciate having you on. Um, and, and just while we are on that topic, we've got a bit of a, a kind of three-pronged question for you here. I wanted to know how you kind of plan your interviews with your guests, because I suppose you mentioned there the goal is to, is to provide value to the people listening. Would you go into the interview with, with a rough idea of what you want to talk about and free ball it? How do you get uh, the best information out of your guests that's going to benefit the listeners? I suppose, in other words, what's the process that you have like when, when you're preparing for the interview? So we actually put quite a bit of time into preparing for the interviews. And it's not so that we can sound scripted because we don't want the show to sound scripted. We want it to flow naturally and we want it to be a conversation between the guest and myself. But we we often get feedback from listeners of the show and they say your guests are so prepared or you know your guests give the best responses and i've even had people say i'm not sure what it is about your show but i've heard this same guest on other shows and they just seem to do so much better on your show and that's not i'm not giving myself any credit because that is not me at all that is all on the guest they're doing a great job for us but i think what helps is that we send them a list of 10 to 12 if not more questions at least 48 hours before the interview that way they can prepare. We don't expect them to write out a script and read it word for word during the interview. And that's not 
what we do either. We I'm not going to go number one, number two, number three down the list. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the guest will provide a response and then I'll think of a question off the top of my head and I'll ask that and then we'll go down a different rabbit hole and then we'll come back to the list. So, But the questions allow them, they at least have an understanding and an expectation of what is coming, what's ahead, and they can start to kind of think of what they're going to say. And so that alone, whether depending on how detailed they want to be, some guests will be very detailed. They'll have bullet points and everything they want to talk about. Others don't prepare at all, and that's fine too. But then there's others that are just familiar with what we're going to talk about, and that allows them to provide a better experience, a better response, a better answer to all of the things that we're going to talk about. And the, the audience really does hear that. And it takes time, right? That's something that I do that takes me time. It probably takes me two to five, six hours per guest, just depending on who they are and how much I know them and what we're going to talk about. So it does take time, but it, it leads to a more quality interview. Yeah, that, that's actually really interesting because, I mean, we've only, we've only done four or five episodes at this stage, but we're constantly looking at ways we can improve as we build the podcast. And I think that's something we might take on board, I suppose. And you touched on it there. It gives the guests the opportunity to prepare as opposed to just going in and, and just speaking freely with whatever question they get asked. So definitely something that, that we might look at in, in the future because it's just about providing value at the end of the day. It's about getting the best possible information recorded for the person listening. And you've, you've touched on it there, I suppose, with the amount of time that you do spend researching the guests beforehand. What would you say, like, how long does it usually take you to produce an episode from finding a guest to recording to, to publishing or promoting? And you know, where is most of the time spent in the whole process? I mean, would it be the editing? Would it be the researching that you mentioned there? Or would it be the actual marketing once it's it's recorded? The most time is definitely spent on the editing. I would say in total, we probably spend about an hour on finding guests on average. Well, these are all going to be on average. We'll say about a half hour to an hour on finding guests and then probably another two to five hours on preparing for the interview, whether that's doing research, reading their book. I often read the, the guest book if they have one. I'll take their courses. I'll read their website. I'll do everything I can, You know, go through their social media. I'll just really prepare and then write questions for the interview. Then probably about an hour to two hours to record the interview itself, depending on how long that is. And then from there, we spend about eight to 12 hours per hour of recording on editing. So typically, we'll just say the average episode's about an hour we'll spend about eight to 12 hours on that one hour of content on editing. And then from there, we spend probably about 30 minutes to an hour on show notes and then updating the website, things of like that. And then posting it through our hosting platform and then social media, all of that combined is probably another two hours or so. So I think we're probably upwards. I didn't keep track as I, as I went through all those, but I'm saying we're probably upwards of 20, 25, 30 hours per episode. Well, that's absolutely incredible. Like on the surface, especially to the listener, it might not seem like that a lot of work, you know, because I mean, at the end of the day, it's like you grab a microphone, you sit down, you have a chat, but I don't, I don't think people are really aware of the amount of work that goes on in the background. So it's very relatable from this end anyway. But um, one guest that you had on recently was uh, Kevin O'Leary, who's well known for Shark Tank or even more so as Mr. Wonderful. Um, but um, how do you manage to get a guest like Kevin on your podcast? And just, just for individuals, like say, um, who have their own podcast, like how do you get people of this kind of stature on your show? Yeah. So just to touch on the amount of time it takes, I had no idea how long it would take either when I got into podcasting. I had, I just, I really had no expectations of what it was going to be like. And it's definitely a lot, a lot, a lot more work than I expected. 
Uh, but it's necessary, right? You said you can't, you, I know you guys listen to the podcast and you can't tell that we put in that much time. And that's kind of the point. You know, we don't want it to sound scripted. We don't want it to sound like it's overly edited, but it is. And we make it, we spend so much time making it sound like it's not edited, but while clear and clean and good audio at the same time. So it takes a lot of time to make it sound like it's not edited, but still be high quality. So in terms of getting the guess, Kevin actually reached out to me and asked to come on the show. So I didn't have to do any outreach for Kevin specifically. So that's not really a great answer to your question. It's not really providing much value seeing how he cold outreach to me. There are a couple other guests that were similar in stature, I would say, to Kevin uh, that we've had on the show, such as Jesse Itzler, who is sold his company Warren Buffett. He's a NBA team owner. And then also Lewis Howes, entrepreneur, uh, also one of the top hosts of a business podcast. And I think what's interesting about, and I'm going to use them as an example because I think it's probably one of the most interesting and fascinating stories I've had about getting guests on the show. So we had a little bit of a connection to Jesse Itzler. And so I reached out to him and I've always thought about it as, you know, you just kind of build your inventory of having these relationships and having these names that you can kind of name drop. And so once we were able to get Jesse Itzler on the show, it just so happened that I was reaching out to Lewis Howes. I had no idea that they knew each other, um, but I reached out to Lewis Howes, and in the email, I say to him, "I said, hey, you know, we've had Jesse Itzler, Robert Kiyosaki, Tony Robbins, you know, all these guys, and we're kind of name dropping them just to provide validity to our show as to who we've had on, and say, like, hey, you would be in great company if you came on the show." And so we're name dropping all these people in the email as we're reaching out to these high profile guests. And it just so happened that Lewis Howes was sitting in a hot tub with Jesse Itzler in Poland when he got my email. And he was checking his phone, he got the email, and he saw Jesse's name in the email. He's sitting right next to the guy and he says, Jesse, you know, what is this? Blah, blah, blah. And they ended up talking. And, you know, Lewis got back to me within probably 10, 15 minutes and said, Hey, I'd love to do it. And basically ended up telling me this story. And that's just kind of how it's evolved. And then from there, you know, you have now you have Lewis Howe's name that you can drop. And so you reach out to another big name and you say, oh, I've had these three, four, five big name guys on the show. And, you know, now I could go to other sharks that have been on Shark Tank. I've had two or three on the show now. And I could just say, hey, I've had Matt Higgins. I've had Kevin O'Leary and these people. And you just kind of continue to grow your network that way. And you can also, of course, ask for recommendations from anybody else that you've had on the show. You know, you could say, hey, could you recommend me to so and so? But that's just kind of how we've done it. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's really important to kind of build that relationship with those people. One that I'm really hoping for, and I hope happens soon, is uh, Mark Cuban versus uh, Preston on Bitcoin. That's that's what I'm really looking forward to. I just want to say as well, um, I mean, what kind of advice, like, let's say someone's looking to start their own podcast, whether it be in gaming, like beauty, sports, or whatever it may be. I mean, what advice could you really offer to someone looking to start out? Make sure you have the highest quality audio you can. You don't necessarily have to have the best equipment but make sure it's high quality audio and put in the time to editing. If you listen to a raw file that we do and then compare it to our final product, it sounds so much better when it's final because we take out every single um, uh, you know, coughs, things like that. We take out all of that. So it sounds really clean and really clear. So I guess the biggest piece of advice that I would give is one, get started, but I think that's too obvious. I think make sure you have high quality audio and invest the time in preparing for post and pre-interview. Everybody thinks that recording the the podcast is important or the most important piece. And it is important, of course, sitting down and actually having the conversation. But 
I'd argue that what you do pre and post interview is actually more important than what you do during the interview. So I would just make sure you focus on those things. And is there any resources that you kind of offer to people that are looking to get started to kind of study up on? I know, I think Pat Flynn has the um, Power Up uh, podcast course. Is there anything like that that you'd recommend? I actually don't have any recommendations on that. I've never taken any courses or used any resources, really. We've kind of just all done this. So yeah, that's just really self-learning, is it? Yeah. And also, you're, I think I remember hearing before on one of your podcasts, you're currently working a day job as a corporate finance manager. Would I be right in saying that? Yes. And you're the host of two podcasts and also involved a real estate investor. I mean, man, your schedule must be crazy. Um, I was just wondering, like, how do you manage your time throughout the day? And could you share some productivity tips with our audience that maybe might help them maximize their output? Yeah, I'm very busy. Actually, I just closed on a deal last week and I literally have painting cabinets and remodeling a kitchen right now. And I had to stop doing that, came up here to, to my studio to do this interview with you guys. And as soon as I'm done, I'm going to go back down and continue uh, remodeling the kitchen. So definitely a very busy schedule with everything I got going on. But I guess the the biggest piece of advice I'd give is it really everything that we're talking about today comes back to preparation, whether it's podcast, productivity, if we end up talking about investing, it's all about prep, uh, being prepared. And so for me, if I don't stay organized and prepared, I'm, I wouldn't get out as much as I do done. I created this thing. It's called a daily time log. And basically at the top, I write the date. I wrote what time I woke up. I wrote for how many hours I slept because I personally think sleep is incredibly important. Right below that, I write uh, one thing I'm grateful for every single day. Then I write down three goals. And these are three big goals. These aren't, you know, a goal for the day. These aren't a goal for the week or the month. Even these are like big goals that I want to probably accomplish for like the year. And I, those, so those will stay the same every day until it's completed. And usually, and then below that I have uh, a section for my day job tasks. And then I have a section for my side hustle tasks. And then I have a section for just other tasks. And usually those are my daily tasks. These are all the tasks that I have to do throughout the day. And those all ultimately lead to the things I have going on. And then ultimately will lead to the goals that I have at the top. And then towards the bottom, I write down my 30 minutes to one hour of learning today included. So write down what I learned that day. Then I rate my scale on a, myself on a scale one to 10 on what my productivity was for the day the physical activity that I did for the day, and then I write down what I struggled with. And so before I start my day, every single morning, I wake up, I fill this out, write down everything I got to get done for the day, and then I just work my way through the list. And you know that allows me to be prepared for the day. I'm not winging the day thinking about what I have to do next. I already know what's coming next. Ideally, I even put times on when I want to work on these things, and then I just work through it. It's being prepared and organized and that's really the biggest piece of advice I can give. I 100% agree with you, Robin. I want to thank you for sharing that. That's one of the best pieces of advice that we've had on, on the podcast so far. I have actually a really, really similar routine. I know you mentioned earlier you get up at 5 a.m. That's actually something that, that I said are doing recently. And I love the quote, a schedule defends from chaos and whim. I think it's just so important to have a plan for your day because if you aren't scheduling things, if you aren't writing out goals and specific objectives you're trying to carry out you're just you're, they're going to slip your mind you get preoccupied with different things your phone buzzes you get a phone call you get a notification and i think it's just so important to have that structure so anyone listening i definitely definitely advise taking that on board even even just writing out a few things you want to accomplish per day i, I do that every morning like i'll write out a few goals like you mentioned three goals that i've got for the year and when you write them out every morning 
you just you're always thinking about them and so you're way more likely to uh, to achieve them but um yeah I, ju- I just wanted to touch on that and robert i wanted to thank you again for for sharing that let's uh let's transition over to to real estate investing then obviously something you're very passionate about and, and extremely knowledgeable in a book i uh, i read recently is the book on rental property investing by uh, brandon turner the bigger pockets business um and who i'm sure you're familiar with them one thing I noticed on uh, on the real estate investing podcast is that you talk more so about rental properties over other property investment strategies. Why is this your core area of focus? Uh, it's my core area of focus because I'm personally focused on cash flow mainly, and that's the type of strategy that provides that cash flow. And also, I'm not looking for another job, and typically other real estate strategies. You know, you could you could be alluding to flipping. You know, why don't I talk much about flipping? And that's because that's buying another job. I don't necessarily see that as quote unquote investing. And so I'm not looking for another job. I'm looking to generate passive income and and wealth through equity in real estate. And so for me, that's why I I, I focus on the stock market for appreciation, and then I focus on real estate for cash flow. And so. That's really the main strategy that provides cash flow. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And I know a lot of people do try and flip properties. It's not as popular over here in, in Ireland where, where we're based. But um, I, I thought I'd ask you as well, because I think it, cash flow is the most important thing. Some people would look at, at the stock market. They might have a portfolio just for dividends, the cash flow. But um, no, that makes perfect sense. It's, it's nice and simple as well. Um, and you've kind of already answered this in, in a sense. But I did want to ask you, you know, a lot of people listening here, probably in the early 20s, they're really just getting a grips with the, the fundamentals of investing and, and how to earn passive income. What would what kind of a property investment strategy would you recommend for proper beginners? And, and could you explain how it works starting off? I would say a house hack is where I would start. That's the most important strategy for a new investor. And basically how it works is you just buy a property and you rent out any additional space that you're not using. In its simplest form, that's all house hacking is. You can make it as complex or as simple as you want, but that's how I like to explain it. It's really a pretty simple concept, really. You buy a property, say you buy a single family with three, four, five bedrooms. You live in one of the bedrooms and you rent out all the other ones. That's a form of house hacking. You could also buy a duplex, which is two units. You could buy a triplex, which is three units, or you could buy a quadplex or a fourplex, which is four units and live in one of the units and rent the additional units. And so for me, I just closed on a duplex. I just bought a two-unit property. I'm living in one of the units and I'm renting out the other. And that's also a form of house hacking. We mentioned one book there, the book on um, rent property investing. I was just wondering, what other resources would you recommend for beginners? I would recommend, that's a great book that you mentioned. I also really, really like The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. It's The title's a bit gimmicky. And so I don't really like that part of it. I don't necessarily like the title. I think there's a lot of different names he could have titled it personally. But other other than that, the content in the book is great. I love that book a lot. It's one of my favorite real estate books. And then you really just can't go wrong with any of the bigger pockets books that are out there. They're all great content. If you only had a limited amount of capital and could only invest in either say the stock market or real estate, which would you choose and why? Real estate, because I want to focus on cash flow. That's that with cash with real estate you get appreciation and cash flow. It's mostly focused on cash flow for me based on the rentals that I buy, but you do also get appreciation and you do build out equity every month. So you're technically still getting that equity appreciation from your tenants paying down your... Well, you're getting the equity appreciation and you're also building equity by your tenants paying your mortgage every month. So if I had to pick one, I would pick real estate 
I don't think you have to pick one. I think you have often two sets of income or two sets of savings that you can split the two. And that's what I do. So for me, my retirement money goes into 401k through my employer. And then anything outside of that that I save goes into real estate. And that's how I separate the two. How has real estate performed relative to your your stock portfolio, even as of recent? Well, my stock portfolio has done great this year. Uh, that's in the short term because I was sitting on a lot of cash, not necessarily in dollar terms a lot, but in terms of the percentage of my portfolio. If you look back to March, I had been sitting on 80 to 90% cash in my portfolio since probably early 2018, mid 2018. So I'd been sitting on cash for a while and I was kind of waiting for the markets to pull back a little bit to make an investment. And so my portfolio for stocks is, and I dumped it all into the market. I think I have like 5%, 3 to 5% in cash right now, but I dumped the rest of it into the market in March at, at or near lows. So my stock portfolio has done very, very well this year. My real estate portfolio has continued to do well. We haven't had any vacancies or any issues with tenants paying, thankfully, uh, knock on wood. But even if we did, we have a lot of reserves set aside for that. But they both performed really well, I guess, on a percentage return basis. This year alone, I would say stocks have done better. But my real estate portfolio has provided me great cash flow as well. How large is your real estate portfolio now uh, as part of your overall portfolio? And do you feel like it's um, appropriately balanced going into the future as of this moment? I do think it's appropriately balanced. And I get often asked why I don't invest in REITs, which are real estate investment trusts through the stock market. And the reason for that is because if you consider my exposure to real estate with my portfolio already, the the portfolio that I own personally, I would be overweight real estate if I buy REITs. And so that's why I keep it so separate as I just buy real estate physically. And then I buy stocks on their own without considering REITs so that the two are separate. So I don't have real estate exposure either way. I like REITs a lot, actually. If I ever get out of the real estate space, you know, buying my own rentals, I would definitely consider REITs. So that's really just how I keep my portfolio balanced with the right allocation to each asset. Okay. Yeah. That's um, that's a good point. Just that you're mentioning REITs there. A lot of people don't, don't even know what they are. And they think when they're young and they're getting into investing and they're limited with the amount of capital that they've got, that they're kind of forced to be 100% stock. So that's definitely something worth looking into for people who, who are trying to get exposed to the real estate market. There is always a way that you can get into it, um, even if you're not purchasing a, a property. Um, but just just on that on that point, I wanted to ask you, Robert, when it comes to raising the finances to, to purchase a property, it, it can be quite restricting here where we're based in Ireland um, in that for a traditional mortgage, you're only allowed to borrow 3.5 times your income or if you're getting a buy to let mortgage, you have no limit, but you do have to put down 30%. So could you share some, I suppose, other creative methods of, of raising capital under tight lending restrictions? So these strategies might not be available where you guys are, but in the US, what I would do in that case is I would just partner with somebody and bring somebody else into the deal. It's a little bit more difficult if you're doing that for a primary residence, at least here in the US, they have much more strict guidelines on when you're buying your own house. But if you're buying an investment property, it's less strict and you can bring in more people. So if you are going to do that, I would just partner with somebody that has a little bit more money. You know, somebody, there's people out, there's plenty of people out there that have a lot of money, but no time. And there are a lot of people that have a lot of time, but no money. And those two are a, a perfect match. And so, you know, of course, as long as they trust each other, the person without money 
but has time, can do all the work and find all the deals and do everything they need to. And then those who have the money but no time can just invest with that person and they can both buy the property together. Yeah, I like that. It's kind of, I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing. And I suppose it's a win-win for, for both sides of the uh, of the deal there. Um, Robert, I, I wanted to just ask you on, in your personal journey, like when, when you first started on your buying your first property, how did you go about getting the capital for that? Was it just from saving or was it from other investments or anything like that? Yeah, my first property, I just saved up the money. It, it, it wasn't a ton of money. Here in the US, we have three and a half percent down. So I just got three and a half percent down didn't buy a super expensive property and I worked for four years full-time while I was in college and saved up as much money as I could. I just want to ask as well, so similar to stocks, I mean, that's, there's tons of rental properties to purchase. Um, I, I was just wondering, what are the conditions that you use to narrow your scope to finding the ones that may be a feasible investment? In other words, what are your um, quantitative and qualitative uh, factors that you look for? I pretty much focus almost entirely on cash on cash return. Again, because I'm so focused on cash flow, that's what I'm worried about. Some people would look at IRR, which is your internal rate of return, which is heavily impacted by the appreciation that you expect. I tend not to focus on that too much because I'm, again, focused on cash. And so for me, I look at your cash on cash return and see what that's going to be. And that's the main metric or, or number that I look at for almost every property. And um, what, what type of properties would you usually look for? Would it be a single, single family home or um, a duplex? I mean, what, what, what kind of properties do you usually look for? I typically focus on single family or small multifamily. So four units or less or single family right now. Ultimately, once I build my portfolio to a certain size, I plan on selling all of those assets and using that as a down payment on a much bigger asset. And so you could sell, say, seven to 10 single family or duplex properties and use that money as a down payment on a 50 or 100 unit. And then you go from having seven to 10 units to having 50 or a hundred with the same amount of money. So that's kind of my strategy there. And is there any kind of principles that you've learned in stock investing that you've brought over to um, property investing, i.e. margin of safety, um, anything like that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Margin of safety. I, t- I tend to say that I invest in real estate like Warren Buffett invests in the stock market. And that's because my background in the stock market is via Warren Buffett. He's my teacher, if you will. I've studied him more than anybody else. And that's what got me into real uh, into stock investing. So when I became a real estate investor, I used a lot of the principles and strategies that he's taught in the stock market. And I said, well, these are just as applicable to the real estate market. Why doesn't Why don't I do that? And so I do. And really what it comes back to is just being conservative. You know, So running the numbers. And then if you think one number is going to be a certain way, discounting that a little bit so that it has your margin of safety. And I think really that's the biggest thing that I tend to look for. Yeah. And I mean, like even from stock investing, I mean, one of the most important principles that I learned as well is th- like the price you pay. I think that's absolutely critical. But um, for, for people like I'm just going to use my dad as an example, like when he gets into property, he more so just looks at a location, low location, location. He doesn't really pay attention to price. But um, I, I mean, for our listeners today, when it comes to property valuation, would you take a similar approach as you would to valuing a company, i.e. discounted cash flow or relative valuation? Yeah, so it's a, it's a form of discounted cash flow. Essentially, you're using your cash on cash is, is again, going back to that metric. That's what I focus on, cash on cash. I would say that's the equivalent of a discounted cash flow model for real estate, essentially. And um, since getting into the game, I mean, what's been the biggest mistake you've made and what have you learned from it? Knock on wood, I really haven't had any mistakes per se yet in real estate. I 
guess you could say that I had a partnership that went a little bit south on a deal. It ended up turning out okay. Uh, we did have to go through some legal proceedings to get it settled, but we ultimately ended up solving it. So I guess you could say that that was a mistake, is go, not vetting that partner enough before going into that deal. But ultimately, it turned out okay, and I don't think either of us did anything wrong necessarily as we entered that deal or even throughout the deal. We just ended up seeing things differently as to how we wanted to exit the deal. And so I ended up making out okay. They ended up making out okay. So it didn't really, it wasn't really a negative thing. It just took a little bit of work or money to get there. But so I guess I would say that that was probably my biggest mistake. Is there, um, so I just want to wonder, I was wondering myself, is there any like misconceptions about real estate investing, like uh, particular myths that are simply just not true that are kind of common in the real estate investing space? Well, for me, the biggest myth that I believed when I first started was that you have to be very rich to be in real estate. And that's why I never really focused on it because I always said, well, once I make all my money in the stock market, I'll get into real estate. I always thought it was for millionaires and billionaires to invest in. And then I just realized that that was a myth. And then I realized there's all these people out there that are doing exactly what I wanted to do, but they were no different than me. They weren't any smarter or any more skilled and they didn't have a lot more money than me. So if they could do it, why can't I? And I think that was the biggest myth is that I think there's a lot of people that are trying to break down that myth. I think it's getting debunked every day, but I just think that for a lot of people that haven't spent the time studying real estate, that that's a huge myth that exists. Robert, we won't keep you too much longer. What I wanted to do is just shift a little bit to one of the other aspects of investing in in property and in real estate. Um, and it's it's a worry that I've got a little bit myself. I'm, I'm kind of preparing myself to invest in a property now in 2021. So I wanted to talk a bit about property management. Now, is this something that you do yourself? Do you, do you manage the properties yourself or are you engaged with a property management company? I manage properties myself. And what's interesting about that is they're approximately 2,000 miles away. I've never been to the city that they're in. I've never seen the properties that we own. And I still manage them remotely myself. Okay. And, and how has that experience been when you're, you're managing the property? I mean, have you had any specific issues? Like what, what would you find that is the biggest, I suppose, pet peeve about, about managing the properties yourself? I mean, again, knock on wood, it's been great. I mean, we have our small things here and there, right? We have to get certain things fixed in the properties and the units for the tenants. But if you have the right systems in place, if you screen your tenants appropriately, it, it, managing the properties really isn't a big deal. I think a lot of people complain about the three T's of real estate, tenants, toilets, and I forget the third one at this point, but it's... If you screen, I think that comes back to people not screening their tenants right. I think if you screen your tenants right, you get rid of so many issues. And the way I think about it is I can let my property sit on the market for an extra month or two. And yeah, I'll, I'll miss out on that rent, sure. But say it's $1,000 rent. So say I let the market sit, the property sit on the market for an extra month or two, we'll say two months. I lose out on $2,000 of rent. Sure, that's not great, of course. Nobody wants that to happen. But say instead... In a counter example, you accept one of the first tenants requests that you get. They're subpar. You wouldn't. They don't meet your qualifications, but you, you just need the cash coming in, so you, you accept them. And then three months down the line, things are going great, and then it stops. They stop paying rent. You have to evict them. They get mad and they destroy the unit. Now you're out any months that they live there without paying rent. Then you got to pay for an eviction, which is probably a couple thousand dollars, and then you got to turn over the unit, which is another couple thousand dollars. And so you're probably out five to $10,000 at least with that eviction. And 
on the other scenario, you lost $2,000 upfront. So for me, I'm willing to let the property sit vacant for an extra month, two months, three months even with no rent coming in until we find the right tenant. I would rather have the right tenant in there than have to deal with the things that come with having a negative tenant base. And so for me, that's what it comes back to. Managing our properties has been super easy, knock on wood. I don't want to jinx myself, but we've done a great job with screening. And for that reason, I think our our process has been great. And we have systems in place to handle everything that we need to handle. And our tenant base has been great and it allowed it to be super easy for us. Great. You know, it's actually really, really refreshing to hear that because it is one of the biggest fears that people have going into investing. So just just to hear that you haven't had any issues, it's fantastic. And I think it's, it's a testament to the kind of person you are. I suppose something that you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation is the amount of, of planning that you do, whether it's planning out your day before you go into it or if it's planning out an, an investment decision. It's, it's just so important. The more you plan at the start, the more you plan before you jump into something, the, the more successful you're going to be. Even the podcasts, the more work that you do, put you, when you put the work into editing, you put the work into researching, you end up reaping the words in the long run. So I think there's definitely a parallel there with, with your answer. Um, I wanted to ask you something. It, it's not something that we have here in Ireland, but is, uh, is a 1031 tax exchange, is that a tool that you've used yet in your investing, in your property investing career? The one thing I want to say to the preparation that you just mentioned, I agree with everything you said. I just want to say that don't let preparation keep you from getting started. I think a lot of people will say, oh, I'm not prepared and they won't start. Sometimes you need to just put that out the window and get started. But once you've gotten over that hurdle and you're ready to start, then make sure you're at least prepared to, to do so. But uh, no, I haven't used the 1031 exchange yet. Um, I haven't done any, I don't have, I haven't really sold off ma- major assets yet that have been worthwhile. You have to hit a certain threshold to really make a 1031 exchange worth it. And so I haven't sold an asset. I have sold assets in the last year or two, but none of them have been large enough in price to make a 1031 exchange worth it for me. Uh, eventually I will. So when I, like I said, when I sell those seven to eight properties, I will probably 1031 exchange those into that 50 or 100 unit property. Okay. Okay. I understand. No, I'm, and I'm glad, I'm glad that you did um, clarify what, what you meant there by the preparation thing. It's definitely important to, to commit at some stage. You, you don't want to get uh, become a victim of analysis paralysis. And I think sometimes just trying something, it, it makes you realize the mistakes that are there and it, it makes you, I suppose, prepare better in the future, but no, you're dead right. And it, it's good to hear that uh, the 1031 tax exchange isn't something that you need at the start of your, your investment career. Um, and certainly not at all if, if you're not looking at becoming a, a giant property investor. But um, something that I wanted to ask you as well, Robin, like I said, we won't keep you too much longer, but for a lot of people starting off in investing, they've got so much information being thrown at them and it can be really hard to develop a, a concrete strategy and really have a trajectory when they're first beginning. Do you recommend young investors, or not just real estate, but just young investors in, in general, should they get advice from a professional before making any investment moves themselves? I personally don't think so. I don't think there's professionals that provide the value you need to get started. I think that's often a misconception. I think a lot of people can do what they need to do themselves. I would, if you're learning about two different strategies, read one article or one book about one strategy, read another book or article about a different strategy, see which one resonates with you the most. And once it does, dive into that with everything you can and and push out all the noise. Don't worry about anything else. Focus on that strategy. Focus on that topic that you're learning and 
just really dive into it. So for me, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an investor, I'm in real estate, I invest in all these different things, I'm working on podcasts. And so for me, I always struggle with, okay, do I study more about stock investing strategies? Do I focus on studying real estate? Do I focus on entrepreneurship? Do I focus on learning and reading more about podcasts so I could be better at that? So I have a lot of different things I want to learn on. And so for, for me, I just have to say, Sometimes I need to put some things to the back burner and focus on one thing and really dive into it. And so, you know, I think I'm at a point where I know enough to be a good stock investor. I know enough to be a good real estate investor. Can I always learn more? Of course I can. Everybody can. And I, I will get back to that eventually. And I do read books still about these topics. But when it really comes down to sit down and take courses and learn and really focus on learning something, I'm focusing on one strategy. So for me right now, it's podcast and entrepreneurship. I'm really diving into everything I can about this one topic. So if you're if you're getting overwhelmed with all the information out there, focus on one strategy, learn everything you can about it. Once you've confirmed that that's the way you want to go, and then just really push out all the noise. That's a fantastic answer. And, and something that you've touched on is, I suppose, reading. And, and there's so many different resources available there. You've, you mentioned a couple of books today. Um, and we've kind of in our conversation mentioned a few we're, we're going to leave them in, in the show notes um and just to, to close things off today robert i wanted to ask you i mean i'm someone who's, who's really big into goal setting i think it's, it's really really important and with uh, 2021 nearly upon us uh, i wanted to ask you if you had any goals in mind for what is hopefully a better year for everyone than, than 2020 i actually don't have any goals in mind for 2021 yet the reason for that is I don't use a new year as my reminder or starting line for goals. You know, today's December 21st that we're recording this. What's any different? Today's Monday. What's any different than starting your goals today than January 1st? Nothing's going to change from now to the next two weeks. It doesn't matter. It's a fictitious thing that people have made up over the last decades. You know, there's nothing different about January 1st than tomorrow. I have goals I'm working on right now that have been taking place in 2020. And they're almost to an end. And if those end in the second week of January, I'll kick off my goals for that year in mid-January. If it takes till February, then I'll do it then. Or if it ends next week, I'll, I'll start then. I, I don't personally wait till January 1st to get started on goals. I think I think people build up a lot of time and they just... Use, so somebody right now that's saying, I'm going to wait till January 1st to work on my goals. I think they're just making an excuse to not get started. You know Why, why wouldn't you just start tomorrow or today? Why wouldn't you start right now? Why why wait till January? There's nothing that's going to change. I think you're just using an excuse to not get started and not put in the work now. So for me, I don't wait till that date. And for that reason, I haven't developed any goals for 2021 yet. I haven't really thought about them yet. I've, I've got goals I'm working on right now. And once those are done, I'll be focusing on, on my new goals. Well said, Robert. It's absolutely just just get started. Just don't even wait around. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to sit down and chat with you. Can't thank you enough, really. So we'll hand over the floor to you. Could you tell our audience where they can go to find out more about you? Yeah, the best place to connect with me would be to be on Instagram. I post free content there every single day. My username is at the Robert Leonard. So that's the Robert Leonard. And then like we've talked about, I host two podcasts. One is called Millennial Investing and the other is called Real Estate Investing. Those are the three best places to connect with me. Fantastic. We'll make sure to leave that in the description of the show. Um, Robert, thanks again. And for everyone tuning in, we'll catch you in the next one. 
Thanks for listening to the Kickstart Garage. This show is for entertainment purposes only. This show is for entertainment purposes only. No one on the show has provided investment advice. The information provided by the Kickstart Garage podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The opinions and views expressed on the Kickstart Garage podcast or those of the participants do not reflect those of the host or sponsors. The Kickstart Garage, its producers, sponsors, hosts and guests shall not be liable for losses resulting from the investment decisions based upon the opinions or viewpoints presented on the Kickstart Garage.